I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is strategist and podcast host, Natalie E. Norfus. The topic is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's uh, an expert and uh, has formed the Norfus firm uh, in 2019, born out of nearly two decades of human resources and diversity, equity, and inclusion experience. Today, she has an alliance of consultants that help bring organizational solutions to clients in various areas. Uh, Natalie believes there is no one-size-fits-all approach to HR or DEI initiatives and uses a metrics-based model to help organizations develop policies, programs, and goals that are customized to their needs. She's the host of the What's the Deal, and the deal is spelled D-E-I-L, podcasts for organizational leaders and those who support them as they make their way along their DEI journey. In this podcast, she explores how leaders can create space for authentic human connection through the lens of DEI, focusing on practical strategies and best practices that improve employee engagement, retention, and impact. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Nice to have you on. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Such a kind introduction. Thanks, Catherine. What I found is, and I, obviously I'm going to get your whole read and focus and looking at through your lens, DEI, but when I talk to people who are engaged in the kind of work that you're doing, they'll always say, well, we, many organizations get to the D, but they don't get to the E. I, diversity. They're required by law to hire a diverse population of, of people working for their organization. But once they get to that point, they really don't embrace it, the equity and in, inclusion in the organization. So it's an interesting take because I think if we were talking about that position a couple of years ago, I probably would have agreed with you um, wholeheartedly. I think there's still some of that, right? Where um, people sort of are at the surface of, of what DEI means. But what we've seen, particularly in the last two years, um, you know, there was a lot of energy put behind uh, DEI and being more strategic and practical about it after the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020. So there's a lot of activity, right, from companies. And now people are like, well, now what, right? We're, we're not seeing the impact we want to see. It still feels very surface level. So a lot of the companies we work with are at the point of wanting to go deeper and like get past some of the fluff. So we're actually in a good way seeing a lot more effort being put into developing goals that are measurable, trackable, and really focusing on impact. Like what does an organization really want to see happen with this work? How do you get beyond the fluff, as you say? Because obviously that's key. You get in there and you help them to do this, help organizations to do that uh, and really have an impact. So what's the process? What do you do? What is Norf your firm, Norfus firm? How does that operate? So we're really uh, big data geeks. <laughs> like we <laughs> love to know as much about our clients as possible. Um, we also are big on surveying and uh, what we typically do when we start a, an engagement is one, we just, there's certain documents where always we want to understand like certain people practices, like what should it be on paper based on what the company's doing? We look at trends in terms of ways in which they promoted people or not um, and the like, but I'd say the most 
powerful thing we do is, is we start with an organizational uh, an organization's leadership, senior leaders. So we have a way in which we assess where they are on their leadership journey um, in terms of, of, of uh, live interviews that we do with them. And then we survey the rest of their organization. So we have we start to find out whether there's a difference in between the, what leaders think is happening in an organization or should be and what the rest of their employees think is happening in an organization or should be. So we try to help close some of those gaps uh, for our clients. And we also come to them with recommendations based on their own data. So from, you know, my time as a chief diversity officer uh, for a big uh, fast food chain, you know, we were really focused on metrics. And for me, that was a big shift because I'm a lawyer first, an employment lawyer, and we really aren't, we don't live in metrics that way. So it was a really powerful way to elevate this work because I found that a lot of people were really caught up in the emotion of some of this, which is which is important, right? How people feel, do they feel like they are included? Do they feel like they belong? Um, and so when we also are able to add these metrics of this is what your data is telling you, then we're able to treat it like any other business issue. Um, when any company is looking to add a service or a product, they're typically going to collect data. They're typically going to make decisions based on what that data tells them. And that gives us away from who's right, who's wrong, whose view is better. It's like, here's what our data is telling will lead you to the best um, place. So we really avoid cookie cutter, like you should do this because company A down the street is doing this, and more looking at where each company is on their journey and bringing them practical solutions that fits where they are. How do you get your clients in the first place? Well, uh, a big a big part of it these days is, is actually most of it has been word of mouth, which is such a blessing. Um, you know, I practiced as an employment lawyer for, you know, almost 15 years. And um, through that, before going in-house and then starting my own company, um, I've been able to build a huge, incredible network. So we're, we're usually either clients extending or people recommending us. And so that's been a really cool way to, to build this business. Natalie, you mentioned that, uh, and I think I understood it correctly, there's sometimes or often a disconnect between the way employees feel they're being treated as to actually the way they are being treated. Is that what you were saying? Well, more that the the leaders may see it one way, like may see their DEI efforts one way, and their employees are experiencing it a completely different way. So, so when, a disconnect between like the leader's view of things and employees' views of things. Well, let's start from there. Um, and that's a great example. So then um, the leaders see it one way, the employees see it another way. Then what? Then what do you do? What's the process? Well, the first thing is uh, <laughs> we, we always remind people early and often that you might hear things that are uncomfortable. Um, and change comes from discomfort. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen situations where leaders were pretty taken aback by, you know, where where their employees were seeing things. Um, and so we really try to be mindful of the fact that that may be news that's hard to take, but it's the news you need to be able to get to a different place. Um, and so that's one thing, right? Holding holding space for the feel the big feelings that could come up from this information even though, again, it's, it's, it's some amalgamation of quantitative and qualitative data. And then when we have those conversations, so and another thing we do is we try to make sure our clients, the senior leaders, have the presentation, at least 
three or four days before they're talking to us. So they have time to review it and process it. And it's not like they don't feel like they're being like, you know, walked in the face. Right. And then we, we go through and really then focus on, was there anything that surprised you? Is there anything here that, you know, really speaks to you or you want to understand more? And then we use those, the, the remainder of those types of discussions to really dig into like, well, where do we go from here? Like what, what seems like the most viable, um, as I'm sure you hear from many of, of your guests in one form or another, folks are very tired. And so we really think about that in the workplace. We talk to people every day who talk about their to-do list being way too long, priorities not being clear. And so we're always trying to be cognizant of how this work should be interwoven into what's already happening and try to make sure we're not, we're not advising like more than three to five, you know, strategies out of, out of what we learn, because again, we're trying to help our clients not overcommit, not continue to overextend, which creates more stress, and really focus on ways that they can make subtle but significant shifts in how they do their day-to-day work. Well, you said that DEI is, it's, uh, well, at least in the past couple of years, uh, is getting better uh, in terms of organizations. But as I understand it, I kind of want to go back to this, because there are some as I understand it, and I want you to address this, there are some states looking to ban concepts like DEI. Yes, including the one I live in. I, I live in Florida. <laughs> and um, I I live in Miami, which is like you ever see any memes on Miami. Miami is such a different place than like the rest of Florida. Um, but notwithstanding, you know, when you look at the the political side, which is, you know, the legislation um, some of these policies that are coming out, I, I take a step back and, and again, not, not looking at it so much from the political standpoint, but more from like a reality standpoint. Um, I, I have a phrase where I say people are resisting reality. And when you look at some of these, um, the, these pieces of legislation that are coming out, like in Florida, looking to ban state universities from including um, the, work, the, the letters DEI or curriculum that touches upon DEI, it, it resists reality. And by that, I mean our country is already diverse, right? That, there's nothing you can do to, to, to change that. Um, we all come from such different backgrounds, speak different languages, eat different food. All of that is diversity. So, and, and frankly, what we, we, we say that we were founded on, right? Um, and then so that's one reality that gets resisted when you're saying we can't talk about these things because, I mean, it's just already happening. Um, the other well, I have to interrupt to you because we're in New York sure, and absolutely. we do talk about those things. I have to interject. Yeah. New York City. Um, which <laughs> no, is you're good. good. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't. Were you asking a separate question? I just didn't hear no, you. No, no, no. I was just kind of commenting because you're, you're saying, you know, re, uh, like Florida, as you're giving an example, resist reality. And I'm just kind of, um, it's a tease. I'm saying we're in New York and we're not resisting reality. We're good. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's another extreme, right? That's yeah, it's another extreme. Side. Yeah, exactly. New York City is always passing, uh, even the city council is always passing new um, pieces of legislation that, you know, really respect of our cultural and diverse differences, yeah. right? So obviously this country has a lot of extremes in that regard. But my point is, is that, I mean, we're, this diversity is already here, right? So that's, that's one piece. So trying to say, hey, we can't talk about it. We can't learn about it. Resist something that is 
actually naturally happening on a day-to-day basis anytime you're interacting with someone who's different than you. I think the other reality that it resists is that we all have access to way more information than at least I did growing up, right? And so to think that you're going to shield people from learning about these topics through legislation, again, to me, resists reality because I look at my 15-year-old and he has access to the world just on his phone. I did not have that at 15. And so you know, using that as an example, I'm always open to talking about whatever he wants to talk about because I know he can just go on the internet and and look for the information. So if someone's seeking out a degree that involves some kind of understanding of cultural differences or equity or inclusion, they're going to get the information whether you want them to or not because it's out here readily available to them. So... I guess my question is, as a social worker or as a counselor, therapist, where does this come from, This uh, that term? I, I know where the term comes from, but resisting reality, emotionally. Take, you know, we'll take Florida. That's your uh, state. Um, what? Where does that come from, that trying to resist reality and not accepting diversity and inclusion and... Can we talk a little bit about that? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think you used the word in that in that in your question that is so critical to this, which is accepting or acceptance. You know, I just was talking to a friend earlier, and I said acceptance is often the most difficult part of change, right? Like accepting yeah. that your reality is not what you think it is, and 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 and, and understanding, hey this is what we're dealing with now. Um, And sometimes it could be, if you apply it to the workplace, people who've worked at a company for 25 years and see things change drastically. And there's, uh, you know, an automatic sort of impetus to say, but we've always done it a different way. And I think at least from my perspective and experience with, with dealing with people on a daily basis, there's some kind of fear involved there, right? That if we do it differently, some part of me is going to be lost or a fear of the unknown. Like, I don't know what this new path is going to take us to. And so, again, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what fear some of this this legislation and some of the rhetoric is based on, but it does come across as somewhat fear-based. Like, if we encourage you to go out in the world and see all these different uh perspectives and ways of doing things, you might look at us differently or something along those lines. But I find the resistance is often coming from people thinking that their own identity is being threatened in some way, um, which I think sometimes comes down to not really taking time to understand what these concepts are getting at. Because I think if people were really being cognizant of what these concepts are getting at, they would see that it, in fact, can add to them. So what I mean by that is, you know, we have clients with views that are not the same as mine, and I really strive to stop and listen and understand where they're coming from, because it doesn't mean that I'm not who I am by hearing something different. In fact, it makes me better because I'm like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. I may not agree with their position, but it does allow me to open my own mind and how I'm viewing their problem or their situation. Can you give us an example, those clients that you're talking about who may be very different from you, have a very different perspective, and yet they are your clients and you have to work with them or you are working with them? I won't won't mention them specifically. No, you don't have to name them. (laughs) Yeah, there's two two ends of the spectrum, right? We we have um, a number of nonprofit clients 
who really put a significant amount of effort in um, in moving uh, the needle on you know systemic discrimination and inequitable practices in the communities they serve. And so we've had clients that um, will start off with you know sort of talking about how they subscribe to this model of white supremacy framework. And what that gets at is the ways in which workplaces um, have habits, practices, and, you know, policies that are white-centered and perpetuate uh, systems of discrimination. When When I first heard that, like, I had a really visceral reaction because, I mean, I think no one wants to be called a white supremacist, and I wonder how you could have a conversation where that's the, the premise you're calling someone that or saying what they're doing is, you know, white, like white supremacy oriented. And so it, it was a shock to me at first to hear that because in corporate America, you don't really hear that, that discussion happening. And I had to really pause and sort of take some of it in and say, okay, let me dig deeper. Let me learn more. And, and, and again, like word choice is important. I'm sure as you know, so it's not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily go and call someone a, white, someone a white supremacist, but I have a much better understanding now of the concepts and, and, and really get it in a different way than I did immediately. Immediately, I was like, oh my God, you can't call people that. And that was my reaction. On the flip side, you know, we have clients who have views that are further right and don't want us to talk about white privilege or even hear the word privilege or sometimes don't want to talk about the word equity. Um, because, you know, there's a fear that it's, it's a form of, like, socialism to have everyone have some, you know, the way it's been described in some ways is, you know, are we talking about equal opportunity or equality of, of outcome, right? And so I'm very curious about that perspective, right? And so those are the things where, at least in my own world, like, on a daily basis, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of views that I never really anticipated I would and having to sort of make sure I'm making space to process them and not discard them from the outset because they're different than the way I might think on a daily basis. How do you get other people to do what you're doing? Because it sounds like there's sort of an evolutionary change in the way you've been thinking. And now you're able to, or you're able to listen and you're able to process what somebody else may say that, that you really don't agree with. So how do you get other people to do that? You have to build trust. I mean, that's step one. So, and I think that's where, that's an important step that's often, um, that's often missed, right? Is people think that from the outset, they can start diving into these really tough topics and they don't have any real kind of weight, like the person they're talking to um, doesn't know them or trust them yet. And so I I always tell people it's it's a practice. It's not that we're going to have one really good conversation and I'm going to know everything about you, Catherine, and you're going to know everything about me. It's you have to be patient and like anything worth anything, consistently do it over time. So we really push leaders in particular to go out of their way to find ways to build connection with their employees first. Because then it's sort of like when people see you consistently show up and do what you say you're going to do, and you say it's just that that, they're, that you keep certain things confidential that can be and you do, and you show little by little, then people become so much more comfortable to talk about the tougher things. And then you can get to the things that um, you may not agree with about one another and learn from each other. 
And I think the easiest place to start is finding something in common with someone. I mean, there's, we have something in common with every person on this planet, at least one thing. And if you sort of can build some trust and some connection, again, being consistent around something you have in common, then you, then it builds sort of that credit, that human capital between you and another person to be able to start talking about the tougher issues. And so tr- trust is key. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to know, you take the, head, the CEO or the executive director of an organization, and then you take the person uh, who maybe is is on the other end of the, uh, in terms of status and, and earning power in the organization. And how do you build a trust between the, that, those two groups of people? Yeah. Yeah. In a, well, I think, yeah. I think you hit the first part on the nail on the head is it's, it's understanding, it's ensuring that like the a CEO or someone else in the C-suite understands that whether they feel that way or not, they're going to be viewed as having more power and often do have more power in terms of decision-making and influence over decision-making than the people they might be trying to build a connection with. And so oftentimes, you know, and, and, and this is kind of like a 90s, early 2000, like HR cliche, oh, we have an open door policy. Yeah. And if you haven't built something for people to feel they can walk through your door, you just saying you have an open door policy doesn't work because people aren't going to show up and your door's going to be open and no one's walking through it. So it is things like if you're in a bigger company, sometimes it's, it's good for like leaders. Actually, it's always good for leaders to park time to have small like coffee clutches with people, like smaller groups where they can just start to have, you know, certain conversations. And I always tell people, if you don't feel comfortable yet developing your own topics, get help, right? An HR person, a DEI person, like it's not that we're expecting leaders to know all the answers, but they have to make the effort. Like you have to go out of your way as a leader to to talk about yourself, to be vulnerable about your own biases or things that you've learned along the way. We've had, we do a lot of listening sessions with employees. We've probably, we've done hundreds over the past three years. And we often hear from employees, I don't know if I can talk about DEI because I never hear my leader talk about it. So, again, we're always pushing leaders, like, go out of your way, even if it's uncomfortable, because you are the one with the sort of greater power in, in, the, in the dynamic, and people will, will feel part of, of the organization if they're seeing, oh, okay, well, they're talking about it, so I'm cool with talking about it, and I know me and that leader have you know, tennis in common and he's, they, he or she is really cool about this and that and the other. And then you're going to have these tougher conversations. The other piece is that when you get into the tougher conversations, like around privilege or experiences that marginalized groups had, it's really important to have a facilitator, like someone who understands how to facilitate the conversation to help them. Again, we've seen that a lot too, where companies try to have their, these kinds of discussions without you know, prepping people on the community agreements and how, how to hold space and, you know, all of that. And it kind of blows up because there's no one in there who knows how to facilitate that kind of situation. So, again, I think there's a, there's a practice, right, of showing up and showing that you can be trusted and building that trust and then also incorporating experts when you go deeper on some of these tougher issues. So you have to give, uh, what I do hear you saying is you have to give your employees uh, permission to to express themselves and not be afraid, and Absolutely. obviously that has to do with with trust. Do you find that there's a difference between government agencies and, let's say, private uh, private companies? 
So we don't work so much with government agencies, but I could I can comment at least to say that nonprofits are very different than for profits. And a lot of nonprofits obviously have, you know, grants that come from, from federal or state sources. And so that, that's also a different and interesting dynamic. Um, you know, from what I've seen in the, the, like the government sector, and again, this is not as much of what we do on a day-to-day basis, but just in other aspects of my career, um, there's, there's a little bit more of a rote aspect to it because there's often like sort of a compliance piece to it. And in a way that's a little bit different than um, private sector employers, both nonprofit and for for profit, in terms of how they approach some of these issues. We only have a few minutes left, but I do want to. <clears throat> there was one question I did want to ask you because sometimes DEI is seen as being woke, but that's not true. <laughs> so <laughs> is it's interesting it? because yeah. um, one of the things that I love is the dictionary. And I was really curious as to, like, well, what what does woke mean, right? Because, like, it's, again, it's been tossed around um, so much in kind of a weaponized way. But it's actually a term that was developed in the, in the mid-1900s um, where sort of progressive Black Americans started when there started these racial justice movements. Um, it was really meant to mean... Um, that someone is informed or they are educated, they understand social injustice and, and the inequality. And I think, again, I mean, obviously now it's, it's sort of weaponized in a way that I'm, I'm, I'm not even really sure what the, the position is or what it means, um, because I think, again, take away some of the charge around, you know, um, how these topics are discussed. I mean, I think we can all see that there are ways in which people are disadvantaged, whether it be from a socioeconomic standpoint, a racial standpoint, um, any other gender, you know, sexual orientation, that there are ways in which folks are disadvantaged. And again, I think if you ask most people, most people, not everyone, they don't, they don't think those types of things are fair. So to be aware of them, and I guess to be woke, I'm not exactly sure why that's, that's a negative. I mean, it's sort of just, again, a reality um, and, and not something that, again, it, it, I think some of, sometimes politics overcharges things that are not that complicated or that, frankly, sexy. Um, and so I think this is kind of one of those, those, those types of words. So we don't want to <clears throat> resist reality. A couple minutes left. So, um, and I've been talking to Natalie Norfus who is a top DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion expert. Uh, and we, she has her own podcast, Where's the Deal, D-E-I-L. So, Natalie, really great talking to you. Lots of really good information. So tell us where we can get more information about you and your work. Yes, I really appreciate the time. You had really great questions. So you can find us at thenorfusfirm.com. We're on Instagram at thenorfusfirm with an underscore. You can also find us on LinkedIn under the Norfus Firm and Facebook. Thanks so much again for being on the show, Natalie Norfus. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 